Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of vice. It's Monday, September 17th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today, we're debriefing the New York State Democratic primaries and talking about how progressive women made strides despite Cynthia Nixon's defeat. Thursday was the New York State Democratic primaries, in which Governor Andrew Cuomo won his third term against his most visible challenge from the left yet, the actress and activist Cynthia Nixon. And while in the end, Nixon wasn't able to pull off her long-shot bid to unseat Cuomo, Thursday night shows us how progressives are gaining ground even when they're not winning the big races. It would have been easy for progressives to mourn their losses, but instead, left-leaning Democrats found at least half a dozen reasons to celebrate. Here they are. Six insurgent candidates, many of them women, defeated former members of the Independent Democratic Conference, or IDC. That's the group of eight Democratic state senators that broke away from their party to caucus with Republicans in 2011. It was a big deal. So today we've got Vice Executive Editor Dory Carr-Harris talking to Broadly journalist Marie Solis about her take on the elections and how she believes that while Cynthia Nixon lost the battle, progressive women won the war. So Thursday was the New York State gubernatorial primary where Cynthia Nixon, the Miranda we all know and love, was making a valiant attempt to unseat the current governor and would then be Democratic candidate Andrew Cuomo. Unfortunately, she was not successful. But you were in the room, Marie, with her at her results viewing party. What was the atmosphere like? So it's really interesting because, uh, you know, she was running with a slate of candidates who had all been endorsed by the Working Families Party. So she actually had a joint results viewing party with uh, Lieutenant Gubernatorial Candidate Jumani Williams, as well as Attorney General Candidate Zephyr Teachout. Uh, and they all ultimately lost their bids for the Democratic nomination for office. But, you know, it wasn't as sad as I thought it was going to be. Uh, I kind of thought, you know, walking in there, they had all been really lagging in the polls in the run up to Thursday. So I went in there thinking it would be a little bit of a funeral. But it was surprisingly upbeat, uh, mostly because six out of eight members of the Independent Democratic Conference, uh, which is known as the IDC, were unseated. And that's huge for New York State because the IDC, which started in 2011, is basically a group of Democrats who vote with Republicans. And, you know, what their challengers were saying is that they're responsible for holding up progress in a state as blue as New York. So the crowd was really excited to see that those 
six former members, and I say former because the IDC was formally dissolved in April, um, but people were really excited to see that they were unseated and took it as a sign of progressive change in New York. So the IDC, I mean, I think that you're right when you say that it's an organization that for people who do not follow state politics that closely probably had never heard of until, honestly, Cynthia Nixon's campaign started to really and other local campaigns in New York started to really call attention to this problematic unit. But it would be good to talk a little bit about what it it really means to have a group of Democrats who are voting Republican. Like I think in today's day and age, we talk a lot about partisan politics and we also talk a lot about reaching across the aisle. And in certain situations, I think we look at that as something very positive because it can allow people to move things forward. But what you're saying and what's really interesting and would be and we should talk a little bit more about is how this body really functioned, because you're saying that they were holding up progress rather than being able to come together, unify the two parties and push through measures that, you know, a theoretically Democratic governor would want to um, have passed. So what was holding up the progress that people were really concerned about? Yeah, it's a good question. So I spoke to Alessandra Biaggi, who unseated Jeff Klein, who was the former leader of the IDC. Um, So obviously, this was a really huge talking point for her campaign. And I met up with her uh, in the Bronx, where she was running before Thursday's primaries. And something that she said, because she's a strong believer in bipartisanship, and something that she said is, you know, when I go to the state Senate, I am going to talk to the members on the other side of the aisle and am going to practice bipartisanship. But at the end of the day, I'm going to come back to my party uh, and I'll always be loyal to my party and I'll never betray the Democrats. So I think that's how these Democratic challengers to the IDC members have really been framing the issue uh, as one of loyalty to one's party. And to your point about how exactly, or to your question about how exactly it is that these IDC members were stalling progress. A great example of this is the Reproductive Health Act, and especially with the Supreme Court confirmation hearings and it looking like Brett Kavanaugh is going to get confirmed to the bench, this is a really huge issue in New York State um, for for progressive candidates. So as it stands, Roe v. Wade is not enshrined in New York State law, and the Reproductive Health Act would fix that. It would make sure that abortion rights are protected in New York State, and the members of the IDC, because they were caucusing with Republicans, didn't allow that legislation to come to the floor for a vote. So it couldn't get to Andrew Cuomo's desk even to get signed because it was totally stalled in the state Senate. Right. And so this was a group that had been sort of, you know, officially sanctioned by Cuomo and was and yet was holding up sort of critical bills or pieces of legislation that could have really helped push forward, quote unquote, democratic values in the state of New York, which is a state that has traditionally run 
very blue, uh, which is interesting. But I think one thing that started coming up and, you know, is a potential other victory point for Cynthia Nixon, even though she didn't win the primary itself, is this sort of Cynthia effect or what is popularly referred to as the Cynthia effect, where because of her conviction and her commitment to slightly farther left policies and sort of campaign values than I think some, you know, centrist Democrats usually play to, she was able to bring Cuomo or force him to, in his campaign, move closer to the center or closer to the left than I think he had traditionally been comfortable committing to. So what are some of the ways that she sort of helped bring him over? And how do you see that sort of affecting the race, the final race? Mm -hmm. So the Cynthia effect is something that has been a huge part of Cynthia Nixon's messaging throughout her campaign, even though she, you know, doesn't always call it that herself. And I think part of that is because she knew that she had a really long shot road to victory. So she was really emphasizing that there were these gains that she was making just by challenging Cuomo, even if ultimately she wasn't going to win. One of the biggest ones is marijuana legalization, I think. Cuomo has historically kind of waffled on this issue or or been kind of vague. And Cynthia Nixon is unapologetic about her belief that marijuana should be legalized in New York State, that it is an issue of racial bias and criminal justice reform. And during her campaign, we saw Cuomo come out and give a much more direct statement about his support for legalization and, you know, a path forward for New York State. And I think that that speaks to why having competitive primaries is so important, because it really drives voter enthusiasm. People start paying attention to these races that they'd never paid attention to before because they assumed that the incumbent candidate was just going to get reelected and not really have to answer for their platforms on any issues. They could just kind of rely on their track record in office and point to, you know, a handful of accomplishments and skate right into their next term. But having a candidate like Cynthia Nixon, who, you know, is really taking an incumbent to task on on their record and their progressive values makes people pay attention. And we saw a much higher turnout at the polls on Thursday. The voter turnout doubled from the last election year. And that's a really good sign for Democrats going into November to have this progressive base so excited about going to vote. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting when you're talking about people paying attention and starting to sort of become galvanized by the hints of a potential sea change. I mean, obviously, too early to tell. But seemingly, we have seen in the last little while what is, you know, being referred to as the blue wave, some some critical upsets in races across the country where young, often female 
candidates are unseating the sort of status quo, the incumbent, the seasoned politician. And I think that whether it's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Julia Salazar, who was victorious on Thursday night, or Alessandra Biaggi, who you mentioned previously, it seems like there might be a trend. How do you think this could potentially impact the November election? Yeah. So I think it does go back to my point about exciting the base. Historically, Democrats have been very concerned that they're going to isolate a large group of their voting bloc by being too progressive. Um, But I think what we're seeing is that running these fresh faces uh, who are hitting the pavement, knocking on doors and running grassroots campaigns that are really speaking to a lot of what Democrats call kitchen table issues. That's really resonating with voters. And, you know, they are wanting to see, again, different faces. They want to see women. They want to see more people of color. They want to see more young people. And I don't think that it's too early to say that, you know, we're seeing a sea change, as you said. I think the examples of the candidates who have pulled off these upsets, you know, it's really indicative of the fact that voters are no longer content to just vote for whoever has a D next to their name on the ballot. They are starting to distinguish between centrist Democrats, true progressives, democratic socialists. They're interested in identifying these different groups of Democrats and realizing that not all Democrats are the same. And Nina Turner, who is the president of Our Revolution, which is the spinoff of Bernie Sanders' political organization, uh, she has this catchphrase, which I've heard a lot of candidates use on the campaign trail. She says, not just any blue will do. And I think that really speaks to what we're seeing. People don't just want uh, the kinds of Democrats that we've been getting historically. And even though that seems true, what do you think sort of led to Cuomo's victory uh, in the primary on Thursday? Because I think you could argue that he is that that kind of blue that, that we're used to seeing and that people are comfortable with. And it seems like, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of factors that went into his victory. But I think that people trying to sort of square that circle and understand how a victory like that can still play into and live alongside this clear trend in, as you say, people becoming more aware of the spectrum of Democrats, getting a little bit more involved in or at least aware of the issues that are going to play heavily in the November midterms and also that are playing into these primaries. How can these two things sort of coincide? It is difficult because I think that people are noticing some uneven results. People drew a lot of attention to this when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders were, you know, stumping throughout the Midwest for a lot of these candidates who are running on very similar platforms to Ocasio-Cortez, who, of course, pulled off this really incredible upset. Um, You know, an example, a recent example of that was former Senate candidate Carrie Harris, who was running in Delaware against Senator Tom Carper, who, you know, he was endorsed by Joe Biden. It was a really long shot race. And she did. She lost. But I think to answer your question about Cuomo specifically, New York politics 
is kind of insane. Uh, it's a very specific machine. It's it's its own animal. I think it speaks to why you can't compare these races to each other all the time. They're all very different races. They're all different candidates. And the political machines in each state are so different. And Cynthia Nixon pointed this out in her her concession speech Thursday. She made a joke of it out of it right at the beginning of her speech. And she was like, you know, not everyone took us seriously, but Cuomo did. And he spent like it. He spent According to her, and I haven't I haven't checked this myself, she says he spent $25 million on his gubernatorial primary campaign, whereas Cynthia Nixon spent, I believe, a little over 200000 So, you know, there are, there are different ways to measure the impact of these candidates' races, even when they don't manage to unseat the incumbent. Mm-hmm. And one of the other trends or sort of impacts that people have been looking at and calling out as we move towards the close of of 2018 and these midterm elections is trying to decipher whether 2018 is really the year of the woman. Comparing and hearkening back to 1992, the last year that was sort of dubbed the year of the woman, which was you know, the year of many upset races, not as many as as in 2018, after the Anita Hill hearings about her sort of dealings with Clarence Thomas, when women felt like the establishment had gone too far in terms of becoming single-minded or narrowly focused and not actually representing the general population and the things that they were feeling and the issues that were important to them. What do you think about that comparison? Do you think that 2018 really is the year of the woman? I think that when we talk about 1992, there's a lot of context that's missing because I think that people refer to the year of the woman and use it as a kind of shorthand to, you know, to mean this year that made these historic gains for women's representation in Congress. And it's it is worth noting that year uh, women's representation in Congress doubled. That's huge. But what we don't talk about is in the decades since then, it's basically stayed at that same percentage. We haven't moved beyond 20 percent of women's representation in Congress. We are looking at having another big jump, which is why we're talking about 2018 being the year of the woman. But for me, this sounds like a hot take, but I don't think it is. But for me, I think I'll be disappointed if it turns out to be just like 1992. And by that, I mean, I'll be disappointed if, you know, in 2018, we see another big jump, but it stagnates for the next two decades. You know, I've been talking to a lot of researchers who have been tracking women's representation in Congress for a long time. And they tell me that the danger in having one year that that makes history in that kind of way is that people get really excited and then they take it for granted. They don't keep working to make a climate where more women can run for office. They don't try to change the very confines of the political system that have made it so that women historically can't access it. And so I think I think it's a good comparison to make because it draws our attention to that issue. That being said, I do think that 
we're seeing with these women's candidacies that they are pushing for a climate where more women can run. A great example of this is Luba Gretchen Shirley, who is a congressional candidate running in New York. And she, earlier this year, petitioned the FEC to use her campaign funds to pay for childcare. And they, they granted her a quest. And that set a really important precedent for other women candidates and, you know, candidates of all genders who are parents to you know, have more flexibility and be able to juggle the demands of being a caregiver and run for office. And I think, you know, that's just one example, but I think that things like that are what's going to push this record number of women running this year. That's going to keep that up in in years to come, hopefully. So overall, given all the sort of ins and outs of this campaign of this race in New York, what do you think is the sort of most significant takeaway or thing that is valuable to learn or remember from Cynthia Nixon's campaign? Something that was really striking to me is on Thursday night, some of the first people who I talked to at the results party were this group of teens. There were two 18-year-olds who I approached And I was talking to them and I asked them, have you ever voted before in an off year, you know, in a midterm state level primary? And they said no. And I said, have you ever voted before at all? And they were 18. So they they said no. I mean, it's incredible. You have 18 year olds who want to vote in a state level primary when there are you know, adults who have been voting for years and or not voting or not voting. Yeah. There are a lot of people who, you know, the the voter turnout in midterms is usually dismal. But I thought that was a really a real bright spot because that tells me that there are new people who are coming into the electoral process and who are being excited by it. And especially For those young voters who are paying attention for the first time and getting engaged right off the bat, they're going to continue to pay attention to what's happening in politics and want to turn out in high numbers. And if you're a Democrat, that bodes really well for you. When when there's higher voter turnout, it automatically favors or I shouldn't say automatically, but it historically favors Democrats to have a high voter turnout. And again, just drawing new people into the electoral process and expanding the electorate, making the electorate more diverse. You know, when these polling research firms do these polls, they're calling like dependable registered Democrats who have landlines um, and who are sitting at home in the middle of the day. And usually, you know, those are that's a certain demographic of people. But there are all these other young, more diverse voters who aren't reflected in the polls and who aren't reflected ultimately in the results of these elections. And so when you draw in these these younger voters, you know, they care about different issues. They, again, want to see different candidates and younger candidates. This was the key or one of the keys to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory. She talked about expanding the electorate, bringing younger people in, bringing more people of color in, and, you know, just inviting people into the process who have felt marginalized by it, who 
who don't feel like politicians speak to them or understand anything about their their lived experiences. And I think that it could make things really interesting in November and and not just in November, but in 2020. And we're going to begin to see what kind of United States young people want to see. To read the full story, go to broadly.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And tune in again on Wednesday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.